In the late 80s and early 90s, the crack epidemic was in full swing, and one of New York's most powerful drug gangs was Lenny and Nelson Sepulveda's Wild Cowboys, a.k.a. the Red Top Crew. Red Top referred to the color of the caps on their crack vials, and their less powerful competitors were called Orange Top and Yellow Top. Yellow Top began selling out of an alleyway on Beekman Avenue in the Bronx, which was Red Top territory. On December 16, 1991, in an incident that became known as the Quad Murders, Nelson Sepulveda and three others rolled up with semi-automatics, indiscriminately spraying 60 bullets into the alleyway on Beekman, killing four and wounding one. Detective Mark Tebbins was under intense pressure to bring order to the dangerous area, and he indicted 41 people as co-defendants for several drug-related incidents, including the Quad Murders. Tebbins' street sweep turned suspects into witnesses, and nine of the 41 indicted went to trial. Five of the co-defendants were blamed for the quad murders, four of whom are innocent. And one of those poor souls is Danny Rincon. Alibi witnesses placed Danny on the other side of a large city block at the time of the shooting, including a victim's mother and brother. But the jury could not see through the trial's circus atmosphere Danny was convicted and sentenced to 158 and a third to life. Glenn Garber and Farrah Rosner from the Exoneration Initiative joined Danny Rincon calling in from Attica Prison to tell us about the case that they've built for Danny's freedom. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Before I introduce Danny Rincon, who's calling in from prison, uh, where he's been for a very long time, where he doesn't belong, first I'm going to introduce his legal team, Farah Rossner. Farah is an attorney with the Exoneration Initiative. Thank you for having us. And with us today as well is Glenn Garber, and Glenn has been responsible for a large number of exonerations as the founder and director of the Exoneration Initiative. And it's so great that you're here and so great that you're working on Danny's case that I know that you'll be the first one to greet him when he gets out because I know how much this case means to you. So Glenn Garber, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you, Jason. Happy to be here. And Danny Rincon calling in from Attica. So Danny, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for the opportunity. Danny is serving what I think a lot of people will agree is an absurd sentence. He's serving 158 and a third years to life. But let's not start there. Let's start at the beginning. Danny, you grew up in Washington Heights in the height of the crack epidemic. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like? It was a, certainly a volatile neighborhood, a troubled time in New York City. There was a you know war on drugs. There was a high crime and murder rate. Drugs were prevalent, particularly crack cocaine. And I'm not going to say that I am innocent of being involved in drugs, but I would never do what I am wrongly convicted of. You know, my parents were working people. My dad worked at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center for 27 years. My mom, may she rest in peace. Excuse me. My mom worked 33 years at a gold factory. And my parents worked hard to provide for my brothers and me. My parents are still values in us. And I made a poor decision in those years to take to the streets, which brought nothing but shame, embarrassment, and humiliation on my parents and my family. But, you know, we were blessed in many ways because my parents provided and we had what we needed, my brothers and I, and we went to school. We had a great upbringing, despite the fact that we grew up in a poor neighborhood that was flooded and riddled with violence and drugs. But that was Washington Heights in those days. The South Bronx was no different. You know, I ventured over to the South Bronx at the age of maybe 14, 15 years old. And what I saw there was not much different than what I've seen in my own neighborhood in Washington Heights. Even for the violent insanity that was taking place in the South Bronx and Washington Heights, that whole section of the city in those days. This was a particularly violent crime, though. This was a, a, a crime that became known as the Quad Murders. So there were rival drug organizations at the time in the area in Mott Haven. And there were three that we can discuss which were actually relevant to this incident. There was the Red Top organization, which was led by two brothers, Lenny and Nelson Sepulveda. And then there was another organization, the Orange Top, which Danny was affiliated with. And then there was the Yellow Top. Each of these organizations had a separate location where they would sell drugs. They had different people that worked for each of the groups. They were stepping on each other's toes. They were fighting over territory. They were fighting over pricing for each of the vials that they were selling, trying to undercut the other to take over some territory. So it was a drug war, so to speak, that was going on between these three organizations. 
this was not some small time drug dealing. I mean, they were making between 10 and $20 million a year, just the Red Top Gang itself, right? The Sepoveras were sort of the drug kingpins, if you will. And they were the ones who were actually ruling most of that area. Beekman Avenue is a small street between St. Mary's Park and 144th Street in the Bronx, New York. Lenny Sepoveda basically ruled Beekman Avenue with an iron fist. Lenny Sepoveda, at the time of the murders, was in prison. A good friend of mine, Gerard Hurd, opened up a spot on Bigman Avenue and was selling yellow top. Nelson Sepulveda apparently took over while his brother Lenny was in prison and felt that Gerard Hurd was encroaching on Bigman Avenue. So in an act of force or discipline or what have you, he decided to unleash these individuals, including himself, to shoot up this corner, killing four people. So what happens is, first of all, it's a freezing cold night. It was about 10, 15, 10, 20 on December 16th. And Nelson Sepulveda, who was the architect of the quad murders, arrives on the scene with uh, Francisco Medina or Freddy Krueger, a guy named Platino, who is Wilfredo de Los Angeles, Tezo or Rafael Perez, and an individual known as Crazy Ray, converge and start opening fire into that alleyway at 348 Beekman Avenue. These guys, two of them jump out of a car, two run up on foot. Nelson Sepulveda, Wilfredo de Los Angeles, Rafael Perez, and a guy named Crazy Ray. They roll up, spray the alleyway with 60 rounds from semi-automatics, wounding one person, Janice Brewington, and killing four, Cynthia Casada. Emmanuel Vieira, one unidentified man, and Anthony Green. And Danny, you knew Anthony Green and his family, his brother Benjamin and his mother Irene. I mean, in fact, they're part of your alibi. I mean, again, this is the mother and the brother of a victim. It, it, it just doesn't get more solid than that. Right. What we learned later was that the shooters left the apartment of Terrell Blair and Brenda Blair on Beekman Avenue. Terrell Blair leaves his apartment and runs up to the Green's apartment to tell Benjamin that something's going to happen to his brother down the, down the block because these guys were leaving his apartment and he knew they were discussing Gerard Hurd, his brother, and those individuals around Yellowtop there. So he was headed up there to warn Benjamin to go get his brother out of the way because something was going to happen there. Tyrell Blair has refused to get involved in this matter for whatever his reasons are. Can you tell us about that night? Like, what were you actually doing? That evening, I was on Cypress Avenue in building 370 in apartment 1G. While I was sitting in a bedroom talking to my brother, may he also rest in peace, he was incarcerated in Rikers Island at the time. He had made a phone call. Prior to me taking the call, I was inside of apartment 1B in the adjacent building, 354, in Mireya Bentecourt's apartment. While my brother and I were on the phone, I heard shooting. And it appeared to me that the shooting was coming from right out front. I raised the shade from the window, and I see a girl standing right in front of the window by the name of Pamela Fortune. I bang on the window. I tell her, don't you hear those people shooting? Get in the building. Moments later, within minutes, I'm getting ready to walk out the building. In the vestibule of the building, I run into Pam, Lena Patton, Irene Green, who's crying uncontrollably. I know Irene Green because she is the mother of two friends of mine, Benjamin Green and Anthony Green. She tells me that her boy got shot. I offered to help her up to her apartment. 
Lena Patton and Pam Fortune said that they were going to take her upstairs, so I took her to the front of the elevator, and I left them there. I immediately walk outside. I noticed that Benjamin Green was standing in front of the building. In my mind, when she said my boy got shot, I thought that it was Benjamin because I knew at the time Benjamin was running the streets in those days. Never had it occurred to me that it was Anthony. So I approached Benjamin and I said to him, hey, your mother doesn't seem well. You need to go in there and check on your mother. He tells me my brother got shot. He goes in the building to assist his mother. I leave the neighborhood that night. The very next day, I was back on Cypress Avenue about 10, 11 in the morning, and I see that the neighborhood is flooded with investigators and cops canvassing that whole entire area. Yeah, I guess you would have a lot of investigators and a lot of pressure to get the killers off the streets or to get somebody just to make the pressure go away, right? And I imagine that had a lot to do with how they ended up targeting you, right? Absolutely. Mark Tebbins was pressured to to make an arrest in this case. And he didn't have anything. Tebbins was a member of the 40th Precinct Detective Squad, and he had several open cases in the Mont Haven area during that time. In 92, after the Quad murders, he was assigned to the Bronx DA's office to help make the case on the Quad. He was under a lot of pressure to close all of these cases, and so he used a lot of the same witnesses over and over again, sort of a witness-for-hire situation, if you will. These witnesses would offer false testimony in exchange for money and reduced charges or sentences for their own crimes. In the Quad murder case, many of the witnesses he used to implicate Danny and his co-defendants were members of the Red Top, the rival's to Danny's orange tops and to those yellow tops who were the targets of the quad. They had all had a vested interest in Danny getting off the street, so they were more than willing to place him at the scene. So let me give you an example. In April of 1992, Tebbins received a call from a woman named Elizabeth Morales. Morales, who, by the way, had worked for the Red Top organization, claimed that she and her family were in fear for their lives because the Sepulvedas were after them because they'd stolen drugs from them. So Elizabeth Morales said she needed help. And in exchange for that help, she told Tebbins conveniently that she could provide help and give him information on a lot of the violence that took place on Beekman Avenue. So Tebbins, remember, under so much pressure, he went immediately to the shelter to where she and her three children were and started talking to them. And she said that they could give them names of the alleged perpetrators of the quad, as well as several other homicides that had taken place in the area over time. So he calls them down to the DA's office and they give statements. Meanwhile, he's providing them protection. He's helping them to relocate to a motel. He gives them money for living expenses and food, and he later moves them to an apartment and starts to pay for their rent. So each of them happily gives a statement. One of Elizabeth's daughters, Iris Cruz, what they used to call her little Iris, she was 14 years old at the time of the quad, and she also was an employee of the Red Top. She didn't even read English at the time, but she signed a statement he handed her that she saw Danny from her fourth floor apartment window at the opposite end of Beekman Avenue, which is where the alley was located. And she said she heard fireworks. So she leaned out of her window and looks down the road through a fire escape and says she can see what was going on. Now, if you picture a city block, it's pretty long. She can see all the way down to the other end of the block in the dark because the lights have been blown out and can see that Danny's sitting in a car shooting from the car. I mean, that sounds a little bit sketchy to me. Yeah, and I would like to actually go to that apartment, and I have a funny feeling we would know. Maybe you've already done that. So we actually did do that, Jason, and we stood um, on the street and looked down the block, and there's absolutely no, and we did it in broad daylight. There's no way in the dark of night you could see all the way down there. We see cases like this over and over again 
where these witness statements are so easily proven to be not only false, but could not be true. It's a different category from false, right? Could not be true because you cannot see from where they said they were to where the thing took place. But that gets you know pretty easily glossed over in the course of these proceedings somehow. And Elizabeth Morales also had a son named Joey Morales, who was 13 at the time of the quad. And he allegedly saw the shooting as well. And he, by the way, was a witness in six other cases in which Tebbins was the detective. Let me tell you something about the incredible Joy Morales. Joy Morales claims that he went to buy a gallon of milk at 1030 in the evening and witnessed the quad murders. In another case, he went to buy milk at 3.30 in the morning and witnessed a guy by the name of Rashid Rice and Angel Quinones commit a robbery and a murder at 3.30 in the morning that his mother sent him to go buy some milk. Hmm. In another matter, Marion Frazier's case, the incredible Joy Morales claims that he left his house to go hang out in the neighborhood at 4 in the afternoon and wandered the neighborhood to 6 o'clock in the morning without going home. 13-year-old kid wandered that neighborhood in those years to 6 o'clock in the morning, where at 5.30 in the morning, he allegedly observes Marion Frazier commit a murder on 141st Street. And these people were just so lucky that they happened to witness one murder after another. That sounds like some Scarcella type of stuff. It seems that Tevins and Scarcella are one and the same. This episode is brought to you by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community dedicated to helping people improve their lives. For more than 20 years, Stand Together and its partners have been on the front lines of criminal justice reform. By empowering people to take action, supporting nonprofits, and working with businesses, Stand Together tackles the root causes of problems in our communities and empowers those closest to the problems to drive solutions. Solutions like reducing unjust prison sentences through the First Step Act, empowering community-based programs that help people re-enter society, and now working to bridge divides in our communities. To learn how you may get involved, visit standtogether.org slash conviction. Danny, when did you get arrested? It was almost a summer day, like uh, it was June 6th, 1992. I was on the same street that I was on the night of the murders on Cypress Avenue. As I look up, I see Mark Tebbins, and he tells me that he needed to talk to me. And I said, to talk to me about what? He said, well, somebody said you robbed them. When I get to the precinct, he tells me that I'm there for Beekman Avenue. I said, what do you mean Beekman Avenue? He said, we got information that you was driving the car the night of the murders. I said, me? Impossible. There's 30, 40 people that can tell you I was on Cypress Avenue that evening. That's impossible. I was processed. I was taken down to central booking and charged with killing four people and wounding someone else. And Judge Ira Globerman granted me bail. The bail was set at $100,000. That's kind of low bail for someone who they think committed this horrific crime, isn't it? I was able to get bailed out because Benjamin Green and his mother, Irene Green, were at my arraignment. And as you know, Benjamin is the brother and Irene is the mother of one of the deceased, Anthony Green. And so their statement was to court an open statement that I was on Cypress Avenue in their building and that I assisted her that evening and that I couldn't have been involved. The judge, I guess, took that in consideration and granted me the bail. Even while I was out on bail, I visited the Green's house. So how long were you out before the trial? So I got arrested in 92. I got out on bail. I initially started trial in the Bronx. Well, at least the co-defendants did. And Judge Ira Globerman, a Supreme Court justice in the Bronx, who granted me the bail, by the way, 
Ira Globerman did not believe that I was guilty of these murders. He's told the prosecution at a hearing, he said that he's seen the evidence the prosecution has and he's not persuaded that I am guilty of these murders. And that for those reasons, he's going to sever my case from that of the co-defendants. He said the co-defendants will go on trial first and Mr. Rincon, because he is out on bail, he'll go on trial second. That never happened. Obviously, we was indicted in a superseding indictment in New York County. All the charges were later dismissed in the Bronx and re-indicted in New York County. And I was remanded by Snyder, and that was in 93, and the trial didn't start to a year later. We went before Snyder. And Leslie Crocker Schneider, you know, was an animal judge. I mean, she was notorious for doling out the harshest of sentences and wrote the book 25 to Life, which focused on the wild cowboys. Yes, she was notorious. Little did anyone know that this tough judge would not be Danny's biggest problem. It's important to note that in November of 93, they filed an indictment with 41 defendants, co-defendants, and they called it the wild cowboy trial. But it was like all the crimes that had taken place in that area. So there was a big blanket of an indictment that they issued. And of that, the quad murders was just one of them. And 32 of those individuals of the 41 pled out. They pled guilty and nine, Danny being one of them, proceeded to go to trial. And of those, five of them were convicted of the quad. I can tell you that the wrong people that they focused on were Stanley Tukes, Russell Harris, Daniel Gonzalez, and Danny Rincon. And those people are all innocent, by the way, in addition to Danny Rincon. There was one guy, Wilfredo de los Angeles, who we believe was a, an actual perpetrator of, of the quad. But the theory that they went with was clearly wrong. How did they come to land on all five of them? Yeah, so the prosecution came up with this theory that Orange Top teamed up with Red Top in an effort to off Yellow Top, which was totally false. I mean, in fact, Red Top and Orange Top did not get along, and Red Top um, had put a hit out, it actually shot Danny. In 1990, I was the subject of a similar shooting at the hands of Lenny Sepulveda, where I was shot six times on that same corner where the quad happened just a year before for the same reasons, because I was associated with Orange Top. As we know that the murders happened on December 16, 1991, two weeks later, I held a New Year's party at Cypress Avenue. I invited the whole Yellow Top crew, Gerard Herb, Benjamin Green, whose brother had just been killed two weeks earlier, was in a party with me. So, you know, it just defies logic that, you know, I would try to ambush these guys and then be partying with them two weeks later. But ironically, the people that were actually now known to be responsible for the quad were not present or invited to the party. Again, as I said, it defies logic. Um, So there was really a a clear divide between Red Top and Orange Top, but the prosecution just blew through that because they needed to join them for their case. So you end up at trial. And how did that whole thing play out? So the trial began in 1994, September 94. But I never, for the life of me, believed that the quad was something that I'd get convicted of. For many reasons. The alleged witnesses, stories were all over the place. You know, their narratives changed from one telling to the next. And I knew that there was just so many people that can place me on Cypress Avenue. But as the trial moved along, I realized that the way Snyder was pushing this trial forward and the way she was denying stuff, you know, my hopes dwindled more and more that I can get a fair trial in front of this woman. 
And so the witnesses got up on the stand and they all testified. And one after the other, the lawyers tried their best to try to show that these witnesses were all lying for a favor and providing testimony and to try to get leniency from the prosecutor's office or for, you know, whatever reason. But I predominantly wanted to hear the Cruz Morales family because I, I knew I didn't know these people. I knew that we weren't friends. I knew that these people were lying. And I just knew that at some point, you know, it's going to come out. This is going to come out during this trial that these people did not witness this and these people just implicating individuals here wrongfully. That was my aspiration, but it didn't play out that way. They testified. They gave the conflicting narratives that they gave, and the jury still accepted it. But I believe that the jury accepted the narrative that these witnesses provided simply because the way the trial was held. They sat us in this courtroom, eight individuals at a defense table. So try to picture these guys in your mind. There's three defense attorneys. There's an armed camp of court officers and investigators and police all surrounding the courtroom, media all over the place. There's eight defense attorneys. A couple of the defense attorneys had either a paralegal or, or a second chair. And there's just this big show going on about how these guys were one of the worst groups of individuals that committed all these heinous acts during the course of seven years. It sounds like a circus. I mean, with that many people, how could you even begin to present a cohesive defense? It's very unusual that they would do more than five defendants together in a trial. Anything over five becomes super unwieldy. And this was way beyond that. It was a circus. And the jury, not hearing from any of the defendants, in their mind, must have said that they were all guilty. They all did it. Why aren't they getting up there and defending themselves? I wanted to testify. I was prepared to tell this jury, look, I was on Cypress Avenue. And Irene Green and Benjamin Green had provided information to Donald Tucker, Danny's lawyer, about that alibi. Donald Tucker failed to do anything with that alibi, investigated further and put on alibi witnesses on Danny's behalf. The lawyer, Donald Tucker at the time, who was disbarred, by the way, six months, seven months after my trial, told me that if I force any witness to come into the courtroom to testify that doesn't want to testify, whenever I needed them to testify, they won't testify for me. And I was explained to that if I do testify, it would not be in my best interest. So I decided to not to testify, which I think is one of the worst mistakes I've made in my life. But the trial was a farce. You have a circus trial with an impossible number of people at the defense table, in and around, defendants, lawyers, paralegals. You had a lawyer who was on his way to being disbarred. But the moment, the moment when you were convicted, what was that like? I got to tell you that it was probably one of the worst days of my life. I mean, absent my mother's passing and my brother, I think that that was one of the most worst days of my life. You know, I sat there and looked at, I stared at the jury like a blank stare. And I'm trying to just make sense of how did they come to the conclusion that I was guilty of the quad. The reason we sat there was because of that quad murder. And I knew I wasn't guilty. I never, never, never would have imagined that here it is 28 years later and I'm still sitting here. I, I knew that at some point I said to myself, you know, Benjamin Green's family will come forward. Pam Fortune will come forward and tell these people I'm not responsible for this. They can bear witness to the fact that I didn't do this. And that day hasn't come. You got sent to prison. On the day of sentencing, I was taken up to downstate from the bullpen. 
I didn't make it back to Rikers Island. I was processing downstate. Within the next two, three days, I was on a bus headed towards western New York. I found myself in Wendy Correctional Facility. I stayed at Wendy for about roughly 70 days. I had an opportunity at least to see my mother. My mother tracked me down and made her way up there, and I saw my mother. And thereafter, 70-something days later, I found myself where I am today at Attica Correctional Facility. And I'm looking for a familiar face. And I run into Derek Hamilton, who I had known from Rikers Island, and who actually was a friend of my brother, when he rest in peace. So I seen Derek, and he tells me, listen, you got to go to the law library. But back then, I didn't have a clue of what the law library was or what the law library was going to do for me. And I just didn't go. So five years later, I leave Attica. And I find myself at Green Haven. I decided that I needed to go to the law library because they was offering a legal research class. And I ended up getting a legal research certificate. Almost four years later, I leave Green Haven and I find myself in Auburn. And I run into a good friend of mine named Shabaka Shakur, who introduced me to other individuals that are working in the law library, doing things that were constructive. And I just made a decision that that's what I was going to do, that I had to teach myself how to research, understand how to seek evidence, obtain evidence, and present it. I finally get a job in the law library around 2007, 2008. And then another guy comes into the library that I had the privilege to meet then, Nelson Cruz, talking about his case. He was talking about how he had a wrongful conviction and he had actually an officer who could substantiate that he was not the shooter in his case. Lo and behold, Derek Hamilton arrives to the facility, but he's at the shoe now. And he sent me a message because he heard that I was a clerk in the law library. And so Derek gets down to the law library. Now we're all together. We were all wrongfully convicted. And because we was all arguing actual innocence, we named the group the AIT, the actual innocence team. So what we would do is brainstorm different cases. One of the cases that we brainstormed was uh, Henry Davis. It was a Supreme Court case where the guy was convicted wrongfully, we believe as well, for shooting a police officer down in Georgia somewhere. And interestingly, in the decision, one of the judges stated was that the guy had some alibi witnesses who weren't given the opportunity to testify and they should be afforded that opportunity. And when I read that, I, that, that kind of like gave me energy, gave me hope that the witnesses that I have that can place me on Cypress Avenue hadn't been given that opportunity to testify and should be given that opportunity to testify. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply 
Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When those those legends get here, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You're here already. No, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The thing. That's we didn't the realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. We were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and didn't realize <laughs> well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melanin, Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. So Danny actually had a number of post-conviction motions after he got sentenced to 158 and a third to life. And the first motion was a Brady violation, the suppression of exculpatory evidence, which he lost. It was another one that was brought based on Leslie Crocker Snyder's failure to recuse herself because she had conflicts associated with the case. They lost that. There was a habeas corpus petition brought in federal court based on the theory of prosecution, which was that it was one single conspiracy, which was the red top, orange top combined, when in reality it was multiple conspiracies. They lost that. So during those years, you know, the people that I would write, frequently write, was Glenn Garber, John Edelstein, Ron Kuby, pleading with them to help me with my situation. But unbeknownst to me, there was an attorney who believed in my innocence was David Tauger and David Goldstein, who were actually speaking to Glenn for me. David Tauger, who was the lawyer for Rafael Perez and was co-counsel to Donald Tucker, Danny's lawyer, came to me and said, you got to get involved in, in Danny's case. We actually went, me and David Tauger, up to see Tezo, Rafael Perez, to talk to him because David was saying that Danny was innocent. And the affidavit that Tezo signed came about either when I went with him or maybe shortly thereafter. But in any event, in 2014, I teamed up with two other lawyers to do what was a very substantive post-conviction motion, also called a 440 motion. 
And the lawyers were Jonathan Edelstein and Patrick Joyce. And in that motion in 2014, we had an affidavit from Rafael Perez Tezo, who came forward and said that he was a shooter in the quad murder. Now, mind you, Tezo was not one of the prosecution defendants for the quad murder. He was actually at that joint trial, but the prosecution did not claim he was associated in any way with the quad shooting. But it turns out that Tezo was a shooter. And Francisco Medina also came forward, aka Freddy Krueger. And he also signed an affidavit and said that he was a shooter in the quad murder. Also somebody the prosecution did not target as a defendant for the quad murder. I also want to point something out that I think is very interesting. In 1995, there was an individual by the name of Raul Vargas who was indicted by federal prosecutors of the Southern District of New York, along with several others. They charged 17 murders. Freddy Krueger, who was actually one of the participants in this quad, was charged in that indictment as well. In 1995, the federal government had yet to declare whether or not they was going to seek the death penalty in that case. Raul Vargas decided to become a federal cooperator. In 1995, he admits to the federal government that he was involved in the quad murder. And in that trial, Raul Vargas testified about being the driver and being in the neighborhood and around the corner when the shooting took place and was aware of the details of it and knew that Freddy Krueger was involved, knew that Tezza was involved, knew that Nelson Sepulveda was involved, and knew that Platino was also involved and says that Danny had nothing to do with the quad murder. So we had those three people who were all involved in the quad murder, all people the prosecution did not target as defendants in the quad murder, and they came forward and they said unequivocally that Danny was not involved. That really should have been enough to get either an exoneration or a hearing where they could have testified in front of the court and the court could have heard from them. The judge actually denied us even a hearing on that motion. There was other things also that were raised in that motion that were very powerful. There were six alibi witnesses that came forward. And just to harken back to what Danny was saying a bit, those were witnesses that placed him at that apartment 1G on Cypress Avenue over a block and a half away from where the quad murder took place at the time that the shooting occurred. And those witnesses prepared affidavits and we filed those with our 440 motion as well. Some interesting features also is David Tauger wrote an affidavit and said that Tezo, Rafael Perez, had been telling him all along from the beginning that he was involved in the quad murders and that Danny was innocent. But David Tauger couldn't reveal that information because he was defending Tezo and he obviously couldn't raise that information and implicate him on something that client did that he wasn't charged with. But Tezo ultimately allowed David Tauger to come forward with this information because justice demanded it. And it, it, that gives you a sense of why David Tauger was up in arms about this. The fact that Danny was erroneously placed in the quad murders, not only you know during the trial, but also afterwards and why he came to me and why he's so adamant that this injustice happened, that Danny needed to be exonerated. David Goldstein also filled out an affidavit that was submitted in that 440 motion and talked about Donald Tucker, who was Danny's lawyer, and said that he had revealed to Tucker that there was an alibi and Irene Green and Benjamin Green had provided information to him about that alibi and Donald Tucker never brought that evidence forward. 
And one of the claims in that 440 motion, by the way, was ineffective assistance of counsel uh, for Tucker's failure to do anything with that alibi, investigate it further and put on alibi witnesses on Danny's behalf. So unfortunately, in 2015, Judge Fitzgerald, who got assigned to the case, wrote a very bad decision denying us on all grounds and not even giving us our day in court. And that's where we're basically at now, where we're continuing our investigation. We're trying to shore up additional aspects of the alibi. We're looking into Tebbins, and we're at a place right now where we're trying to get him back into court with new stuff. And I think one of the most important parts of this whole case has been the targeting of Danny, basically to get him off the street. And I think the witnesses they've used, I mean, the judge never seemed to acknowledge the fact that all of these people had a vested interest in having him put away. And that was something that just was never brought to light. And I think that that's sort of our goal going forward is to show that they all had a motive. We have people with no incentive to lie that have cleared him. So I think we just need to sort of parse out the facts and separate them chronologically and logically to see why we're in the situation. It just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any freaking sense. And so many of the people that Danny referenced are people that we've had on the show, people that I consider to be friends, and most of them have been exonerated by now, or at a minimum freed. And yet he continues to go on. Danny, I mean, what a what an inspirational uh, guy you are. You were convicted of a horrible crime that you didn't commit. The killers were allowed to remain free, and New York City suffered as a result. Taxpayers continue to pay for your wrongful incarceration, and you continue to pay with your very life. And all of it is something that should outrage everybody of good conscience. The good news is we're here. We're shining a light on it. We have Glenn and Farah and and a whole team of people. And I think hopefully we'll build a new legion of people with some of the information that we've shared today. And how can people get involved? First of all, they can write letters to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to Cy Vance Jr. um, and ask that they be sent to the integrity unit and that they reevaluate the case. I mean, we went to the integrity unit, by the way, and they didn't give a shit. Um, They can go to their local government representatives in their districts and they could say that this is a case that bothers them and ask those people to get involved and maybe write letters to the DA's office on their behalf. There's also a petition that you can sign on change.org. So please scroll down to the bio and get involved. Now we turn to the portion of the show that we call closing arguments. First of all, I thank our distinguished guests, um, all three of you. Farah Roster, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having us, Jason. Thank you. And Glenn Garber. My pleasure. And I'm glad that you're featuring this case. We really appreciate it. And of course, Danny, um, you know, we're going to get to you last because that's how Closing Arguments works here on the show is that we always save the best for last. And um, But first of all, like I said, I just want to thank you for, for being here. Thank you so much. And we're going to keep fighting for you. So now closing arguments is where I turn my microphone off. I kick back in my chair and I ask each of you to share your final thoughts with our audience. First of all, thank you so much, Jason, for having us. And thank you for taking the time to hear Danny's story and getting to know him and letting as many people as possible hear about the injustice he has suffered. Already, he spent 25 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. As you've heard, there's there's so much evidence supporting his claim of innocence from statements of the actual perpetrators of the quad to the people who were with him at the exact time of the shooting. It's clear that he was not near or in the alley when the shooting occurred. In fact, he was on the phone with his brother who was incarcerated at the moment the shots were fired. 
and he ran to see what had happened. He yelled to his friends to come inside, and then he saw the mother of one of the victims and actually hugged and consoled her. At least six people have signed affidavits stating that Danny was with, with them when the shots were fired. They all signed statements saying that he did not commit the quad murder. He had the misfortune of having a lawyer who did not call these witnesses as alibi witnesses at trial, despite his repeated requests. He also had the misfortune of being tried in front of a judge who was predisposed to not liking him. As we later found out in a book she authored after the trial with no evidence, she blamed him and his co-defendants for death threats she and her family received during the trial. He had the misfortune of being targeted by a detective who was determined to close his cases as quickly as possible. And as we've discussed, we have concerns about the detective's use of witnesses in this case and have found a pattern of him misusing the same witnesses over and over. He's made promises to those witnesses and they often received reduced penalties for their own crimes in exchange for their false testimony. Most of these witnesses were members of the rival Red Top Drug Organization and they had an interest in getting him off the street. So Glenn and I are really committed to helping him uncover the truth in this case and giving Danny, as well as the families of the victims, the justice they deserve. So this case is a debacle of justice. And there's exceptionally strong evidence of innocence that normally would be enough to at least get an evidentiary hearing to be able to open the door to the court and establish through live testimony the exonerating evidence. And we unfortunately had a judge who didn't care when we brought the evidence forward in our post-conviction motion in 2014. The decision that the judge wrote was basically focusing on non-substantive matters to deny us even the hearing that we needed to establish Danny's innocence. We are hopeful that maybe with a new DA in Manhattan or with additional evidence, which we're developing right now and getting back into court, we will get a fair hearing if we have to go that far, and we'll get a judge who's actually going to care and hear the evidence, because we do think that once we ultimately get our day in court, where we can bring those witnesses forward, those true killers who actually admit to the crime, and the alibi witnesses who've never been heard by a fact finder, once we're able to bring those forward in a fair environment, we're optimistic that Danny is finally going to get exonerated. Amen. And now, Danny, over to you for closing arguments. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jason, for giving me the opportunity. I want to thank uh, Glenn Garber, Sarah Rosner, the Exoneration Initiative, for giving me this opportunity, for believing in my innocence, for not giving up on me. While, you know, I fight for my life here, you know, this is a difficult uh, situation. Um, being in prison is hard enough for being in prison for a crime that you didn't commit and doing life for a crime that you didn't commit and you know that you look in the mirror every morning and you don't have a date to be released from this hell, it's pretty. It's a pretty hard pill to swallow. You know, it weighs on my conscience. It makes me make bad decisions at times. It makes me lose my temper and, you know, it, it, it tests my faith. It tests my, my mental fortitude. It really, you know, does a number on me and, and, it, and it affects a lot of, you know, other aspects of my life and, you know, my personal relationship, my friends' relationship with my family and friends. And it's just not right. And I know that most of the decisions that I make obviously are influenced by this incarceration. But my aim is to prove that ultimately one day that I didn't commit this crime and that there is more than enough evidence to substantiate the fact that I didn't commit this crime. And I ask and urge those who have that evidence to please, you know, come forward, come forward and provide that evidence, you know. You know, think about what it would be for you to sit in prison for 28 years for a crime you didn't commit. Think about 
what it would be for a relative of yours, a brother, a sister, a sibling, anybody that you may know that's close to you to sit in prison for 28 years knowing that that person is innocent while that person withers away and rots in prison. That's not that's not an easy thing. It's not fair. I don't think it's fair on anybody. It's not something that anybody should go through. And, you know, this is a difficult system. The justice system is not just. You know, the justice system is about who has the wherewithal to, to navigate the system. If you have the money, you can locate what you want and need. It's, it appears to be in the system. But if you have the evidence, you know, the system, for some reason, tends to undermine it. And, and look for ways to discredit the evidence. Um, something that I faced in 2014 when a motion was filed on my behalf based on actual innocence and a judge by the name of Daniel Fitzgerald uh, undermined the evidence, um, overlooked the fact that I was sitting in prison for a crime that I didn't commit and did away with me, you know, and, and that was wrong. And, and for those reasons, you know, among others, I fight as hard as I fight to prove that, you know, I belong around my family and friends and not in prison to rot away for something that I didn't do. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. 
If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.